This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. A lot of virus headlines uh, certainly coming today. Uh, among them, chief uh, is certainly the COVID-19 vaccine developed by University of Oxford and AstraZeneca, preventing a majority of people from getting the disease but falling short of the bar set by Pfizer and Moderna. This is all happening as global cases pass 58.7 million deaths, topping 1.39 million. Working, though, to help in managing COVID is Dwight Egan, chairman, CEO, and co-founder of Utah-based Co-Diagnostics. They make diagnostic tests, including one that detects influenza A and B, as well as COVID-19. Also, another coronavirus test. Uh, Dwight, joining us on the phone from Salt Lake City, Utah. Dwight, nice to have you here with us. Um, I got to ask you quickly, though, first, let's start with Utah. I have a niece there. She's a doctor. It's been pretty tough. It is, and uh, Utah happens to be one of those states which is experiencing a very large increase in current COVID cases. So when you look at what's happening and you see, again, the second, third wave that we're seeing globally um, and the role that you guys can play, talk to us a little bit about your diagnostic tests and how that is going. Uh, Carol, first of all, I, I would say that uh, the problem that we think some of the states are having is a lack of protocols uh, that are in place to deal with businesses and to deal with schools, for example. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not enough to just tell people to be preventative. In other words, to wash your hands a lot, wear a mask, and socially distance. You actually have to have a protocol. And I think you're seeing more success in places where they actually have a testing protocol. You don't have to test everybody all the time, but you have to test enough of a scientific random probability sampling that you can spot where it's showing up. For instance, in our in our own business here at Co-Diagnostics, we test our lab three times a week and every other employee at least every other week. And that makes it so we have a COVID-safe workspace. And we our employees know their COVID status from day to day. And, and I think that's one, one of the places where the states have fallen down is not uh, being able to have those types of protocols firmly established so that a business knows what they're supposed to do to be safe and a school knows what they're supposed to do to be safe. Now, with respect to our testing, uh, we have developed uh, a, a COVID test that was our original test offering, which we still sell a, a lot of. Mm-hmm. We also have done a COVID-2 test, which we sell internationally in places that are more influenced by the World Health Organization and their recommendations in terms of multiple genes. And then our most recent iteration is an ABC test, as we stylize it, which tests for flu A, flu B, and COVID-19. And the reason we did that is that we're entering now a cold and flu season with potentially 100 million cases of flu-like symptoms here just in the United States. And, of course, in the course of a year, the United States has about a billion colds. And all of these, the COVID, the flu, and the colds, present with similar symptoms, especially in the early going of the disease. So this, this test is meant to make it so you can tell a patient you do or do not have COVID-19, you do or do not have flu A or B, or you may have both of them and so on. So it's, we're doing that kind of a test in order to make it so we can have more differentiation between the different types of diseases that present with similar symptoms. 
Hey, remind us, you know, Dwight, in terms of how many people are accessing, I have an, give me an idea if you have, you know, in terms of distribution of your test, you know, if that's ramped up in terms of demand and remind us of what the cost is and kind of the timeline and, and the accuracy of your testing. Yeah, so, you know, we were the first U.S.-based company to have a CE mark test for COVID. Mm -hmm. As a result, a lot of our distribution is overseas. We service uh, over 50 countries around the world with uh, COVID testing. We also have a plant in India, which is the second largest hotspot in the world, Mm -hmm. uh, where we actually manufacture in India. Uh, We service well over half of these states in the United States. And, and our model is a CLIA lab model, Carol. We don't, we're not a CLIA lab, but we don't actually perform the tests at any of our facilities. We actually make the tests right. and sell them to CLIA labs around the world and around the United States who then do their own testing. So we don't really even have control over the final pricing that those CLIA labs uh, ask for. Our tests historically have been compassionately priced since the get-go. And that means, you know, we're selling tests for, you know, six, seven, eight dollars uh, to our customers who they then put into their uh, their order flow and, and their workflow. And, you know, they have to do the collecting of the sample and the doing the PCR test and everything associated with it. Right. But, you know, our whole history as a company deals with tests that are like tuberculosis and malaria. Mm-hmm. Well, and-, and we do that all around the world. And it- what I'm curious, Dwight, too, and as you said, that what's lacking right now is some of the protocols in states to kind of have a testing plan in place that can give people some confidence in terms of safety and who's got the virus, who doesn't have it, how frequent is it. Just got about 45 seconds left here. What kind of demand have you seen um, for your tests? I'm just trying to get an idea if it's been ramping up in the last couple of months. We have very strong demand for our tests. Carol, uh, we have since we started selling them. Uh, we have a, a very robust business in our original COVID test. We're now taking orders all over the world with our ABC test. And so we think even with vaccination uh, around the corner, and we don't resist that, of course, mm-hmm. as long as you've got cold and the flu, you're going to have to figure out whether people have COVID or not, even if they're vaccinated. Right. You're going to still need to do this to have an idea of exactly what we're all dealing with. Um, Dwight, we're running out of time. I appreciate it. I hope we can get you back here real soon to talk a little bit more about what you guys are doing. Dwight Egan, he's chief executive officer uh, and co-founder of Utah-based co-diagnostics. They do make diagnostic tests. And as you just heard with uh, flu A and B, as well as COVID-19, and certainly in the thick of all of this. This is Bloomberg Business Week. With Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. So this story was atop the most read on the Bloomberg when it recently hit. It was about Prince Andrew acting as an unofficial door opener for a particular individual and his private bank. And bottom line, add it all up, it's not been a good year for the prince. So for more, let's bring in Harry Wilson reporting for Bloomberg Businessweek. He's finance reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone in London, along with Jill Weber, Bloomberg Businessweek editor. He is on the Access Line in Brooklyn. And maybe it's because I've just been binging on the crown again. Joel, but I am kind of all in on this story. I know it, it, the crown is um, basically the only reason we did this story. No, I'm joking. Um, uh, and, you know, you mentioned um, a rough year for Prince Andrew. It's actually longer than a year um, because of how uh, his name has been sort of dragged around. But you know, we didn't we didn't uh, go dragging in in that same mud. But 
what we we did learn and and Harry's reporting as part of this was that he's been a little bit of an unofficial door opener for a certain private bank that has dealt with some sketchy customers. Um, so, Harry, who, who, what's the bank and what was Prince Andrew's relationship with him? Uh, hello. Yes. So, um, Prince Andrew was, was effectively a unofficial door, door opener for a bank in Luxembourg called Bank Havland. Now, most people won't have heard of this bank because it's a, it's a tiny bank. But Prince Andrew was very close to the owners of this bank, uh, David Rowland and his son, Jonathan Rowland, or one of his sons, Jonathan Rowland. And he basically um, started introducing, well, uh, he was out there acting as a, a door opener. His name was being used by them to attract clients. And uh, generally, uh, I guess, uh, acting as a uh it's kind of hard to say. He didn't have any official role there, but he was basically being used to to attract people to this business. Well, and what's interesting is, okay, I mean, these kinds of things happen, but what when you start to dig a little bit deeper, and you guys got access to a bunch of filings, regulatory filings that was reviewed by you and your team, and a lot of you did a lot of. In interviews with former bank insiders. Tell us a little bit about the information that started to come across uh, as you went through it, and and the picture that started to develop when it, uh, in terms of how it involved Prince Andrew. Well, so Prince Andrew has been friends with the the Rowlands since at least the the sort of mid aughts, and uh, and what what you kind of see is a, a picture developing there of this relationship whereby. The Rowlands would be out trying to pitch for their business. So it started off with their, their own family office, uh, Blackfish Capital. And then in 2009, they buy this bank uh, from the, the ruins of Iceland's Kalkthing, which they then go on to call uh, Bank Havilland. And what, and what, what you see is sort of gradually over this time, Prince Andrew is, is, is used to, you know, when, when they want to get introductions to someone or something like that, his name will be, be invoked. And these, these really, you know, there's some pretty extraordinary names out there. So, for instance, uh, on a trip uh, to, to North Korea, Prince Andrew's name was used as they were, uh, when, the, when the Romans were there, they were introduced as friends of Prince Andrew. So it really is quite, a, quite an extraordinary cast of characters when we started looking into it. Okay, I gotta ask a question there. You said North Korea. Who are these people, and who are they doing business with? Well, so, so uh, one thing I should make clear is um, they, they never actually ended up doing business there. But just the very fact that you would entertain uh, the idea of, of potentially doing some kind of business with the leadership of North Korea—it's pretty crazy. Um, so this this was a. Uh, a business opportunity, I guess, might describe it that they they went out to pursue their potentially to offer banking services to the the, the family of the North Korean leadership. As I say, nothing nothing actually happened of it, but just the very fact of going out there, it's it's it's, it's pretty out there. And to be okay, so let's let's oh, talk ahead. about more of that cast of characters. That you know, the North Korea one is obviously a, a recognizable one, but there there's some other cast of characters that the Bank Havilland has also counted as as customers, Harry. And th some of those customers have have raised some eyebrows. Can you walk us through some of those other ca cast of characters? Yeah, sure. So so actually. Um... You know, for instance, take take New York. The the largest um, one of the largest foreclosures in New York was actually a Bank Havilland customer. This was uh, Kolaway Aluko, uh, who was a uh, who was a, a Nigerian oil tycoon who was they lent uh, twenty five million to, 
25 million euros to, to buy this, this or, or sorry, after he bought this apartment, they provided him with a mortgage. But the, um, you know, the, this, this then, he was then linked to, or he was linked at the time to a massive bribery scandal back in Nigeria. And, you know, that, that's, you know, that's one customer. I guess you also have the family of the uh, ruling family of uh, Azerbaijan. You know, this is one of the most corrupt countries on earth. Um, and they were banking the, the daughters of the, uh, of the president of Azerbaijan. Well, and it's interesting, too. Uh, you know, I wonder what the prince is saying, what the palace is saying, because you say the emails don't connect Andrew to any of these clients, and you don't know whether the Rolands mentioned him to kind of get it out there, just to be fair. Yes, yes. So, so the, the palace, uh, you know, as, as the story shows, uh, the palace really isn't, isn't, isn't saying anything on this one. I, I think, you know, obviously they've got quite a few things going on there at the moment, so, you know, probably quite busy. Um, but, um, no, they, basically the, it's, it's a sort of uh, a straight no comment from the palace on this stuff. And, um, uh, yeah, uh, we, we'll, we'll wait and see to see what comes out and other things. So, so here I do want to ask because there's a there's a reference that you guys make in the story about uh, investigators and regulators looking at Bank Havilland and and what do we know on that front in terms of of uh, what you know outside interest might might be in sort of the banks and its dealings. So we have, um, you know, as we reported, there is a, um, a Luxembourg prosecutors are looking at Bank Havilland. So this follows a referral from. Luxembourg's uh, financial regulator, who'd already fined the bank four million euros, which, you know, doesn't sound like an awful lot, I guess, to a lot of people who might be more used to banks getting multi-billion-dollar fines. But um, you know, in Luxembourg, this is probably one of the largest fines uh, ever ever levied there. And so the, this this anyway, so the, the prosecutors there are now looking at the bank. They're looking probably, you know, at, at a lot of the things that we've written about. We know that they're looking at the relationship with the uh, Azerbaijan ruling family. Um, I think obviously the investigation has been uh, somewhat kind of waylaid by the COVID pandemic, but it, it's still there. And I guess, you know, as, as things start to clear up, you know, the, the process should get going again. And, um, you know, who knows where that could lead. Well, it's a great read, uh, Harry. And as you kick it off, you and Gavin Finch in your story, it isn't much fun these days being Prince Andrew. There's so many great details, and it sounds like there's still more uh, to be known. But what a great deep dive into this. So thank you so much uh, for bringing it to us. Our thanks to uh, uh, Harry Wilson, reporting for Bloomberg Business Week, finance reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone in London. Of course, our thanks to Jill Weber, our Bloomberg Business Week editor from Brooklyn. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed, you are listening to Bloomberg Business Week on this Monday. Just crossing the Bloomberg, according to Dow Jones, Janet Yellen is President-elect Joe Biden's pick for Treasury Secretary. So again, some speculation last week, but again, crossing the Bloomberg, according to Dow Jones, Wall Street Journal, Janet Yellen, former Fed chair, is President-elect Joe Biden's pick for Treasury Secretary. So we continue to see more and more headlines and news about what a Biden cabinet 
and senior advisory team would look like. All right, so we're watching that. I'm also watching a story that also came from Dow Jones, the Wall Street Journal. It was about senior Trump administration officials saying that they are pushing for new hardline measures against Beijing, even as President Trump winds down his final two months in office. Anything China, always a top story in my view. Let's get a smart perspective from Bloomberg New Economy Editorial Director Andy Brown joining us on the phone in New York City. Andy, um, nice to have you here with us on this Monday. So this story from the Wall Street Journal, uh, you know, it looks like the Trump team may be looking to be even harder, if you will, when it comes to Beijing. What's your thoughts on that and what might be going on inside the White House right now? Yeah, so I think the sense in the White House and the China team is that, you know, we've got two months left to put in place a series of tough measures against Beijing, which the Biden administration will find very difficult to roll back, even assuming that they wanted to do that. And I think that that is quite an assumption. And so um, there are reports that the U.S. uh, is going to come up with a list of dozens of Chinese companies affiliated with the Chinese military and ban U.S. companies from doing business with them. So that would include, for instance, Comac, which is coming up trying to build a mid-sized airliner. That would affect companies like Honeywell and GE, which have joint venture agreements uh, to help build that aircraft. And then in the latest uh, report, the one that you mentioned, the Wall Street Journal, Dow Jones, this idea that the U.S. should put together an informal coalition of like-minded democracies to push back against Chinese coercion. And we've seen that most dramatically just in the past few months with China sanctioning uh, or, or choking off exports of Australian wine, of grains, Uh, lobsters, seafood, um, in response to a whole laundry list of complaints, uh, or as a result of a laundry list of complaints that China has against Australian behavior, uh, basically behavior that's critical of China and its human rights, critical of China over Hong Kong and Xinjiang and so on. Right. And we know President-elect Joe Biden has been very careful about not really commenting right now on U.S.-China policy, certainly when he's been asked about it. Um, But do you find it odd, potentially, that there's all of a sudden kind of a ramping up um, by the U.S. and this administration in terms of new policies? And I do wonder, Andy, what you think that Chinese officials, are they saying, all right, this is just the current administration, it's unlike any other, and we're going to really just wait to see what happens come January? Yeah, look, I, I mean, we, we, of course, had a, as you mm-hmm. know, you were, you were hosting this in your economy forum last week. And I think what was very clear, um, talking to the Chinese delegates, is that, is that nobody has any expectation that a Biden administration is going to dismantle wholesale all of the measures that the Trump administration has, has uh, built against uh, China. And it may actually well be that the Biden administration may welcome all this. Um, it will give them some room for negotiation with China after they come in. Um, and as I say, uh, it's not at all clear that, that in the area of trade, commerce, and investment, the Biden administration will, will take a softer line um, than, than, uh, than the Trump administration. And actually, in some areas, you could see a hardening. I mean, we, there's right. been reports that Michelle Flournoy could be the new defense secretary. She is actually quite hawkish on China and a big defender of Taiwan. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you. I mean, you've got to be watching, you know, as these names continue to cross the Bloomberg and other news outlet 
other news outlets about what, you know, a Biden administration would look like, whether it's Secretary of State, whether it's National Security Advisor, you know, the people that, that he is considering or will be potentially in those positions, what it, what it tells you, and like you said about the Defense Secretary, what it tells you about, you know, what kind of policies might be coming out of the new administration when it comes to China. Yeah, so so even though, as you know, Biden hasn't, has been quite careful not to mm-hmm. say anything about China, I think his cabinet picks tell us quite a lot about where a Biden administration will go. So as I said, you know, with Michel Flournoy, I think we could expect a much more hawkish military posture by the Pentagon. Um, she critiques the Trump administration for not standing up to China strongly enough and not coming up to alternatives to China's vision for global order as expressed by the Belt and Road Initiative. On the other hand, um, I think what was interesting is this uh, is appointing John Kerry as climate czar. Just mm-hmm. a few weeks ago, he published a long piece in the New York Times calling for a really ambitious engagement with China to protect the Antarctic. He talked about creating three gigantic marine parks to protect biodiversity and allow and allow wild you know wildlife to get used to, to climate and acidifying oceans. Right. And that again last week we talked about that that mm-hmm. yes the US are going to have rivalry yes they are going to be competitors but they also have to find discrete areas where they can collaborate so that their rivalry doesn't been out of control and into potentially hostility and war. Right. Climate change, especially if you think about things like that, right, knows no borders. It's not like you can just uh, draw a line uh, at this way. Do you anticipate, and just got about 40 seconds here, Andy, that we kind of have good cop, bad cop, you know, good parent, bad parent kind of, uh, you know, relationship with China potentially within this administration? I think it's going to be, yes, uh, that's one way of putting it. Another would be a mixture of competition and collaboration. And um, Biden has, has talked about that in the past. And I think it's going to be a much more balanced sort of relationship. All right. Going to leave it on that note. Andy, thank you so much. Always appreciate it. Uh, Bloomberg News, uh, Bloomberg New Economy Editorial Director Andy Brown joining us on the phone in New York City. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. President-elect Joe Biden planning to nominate former Federal Reserve Chair Janet Yellen to serve as his Treasury Secretary. It's a move that would put the first woman and a seasoned central banker into the nation's top economic policy job. Again, this is said to be true, according to those familiar with the matter. Let's bring in our Bloomberg Intelligence senior U.S. economist, Yelena Shiletyeva. She joins us on the phone from Long Island. Hey, uh, Yelena, you know, this name was floated about last week. We were all kind of talking about it and reporting it, but it looks like it's more likely now. What does a Janet Yellen bring to the position of Treasury Secretary, and especially at this particular time? She brings a lot of experience, a lot of crisis time experience. So she was at the helm of the Fed uh, during the uh, last expansion, and uh, she also brings a lot of expertise in terms of uh, uh, the labor market economics. So she, her research has been always focused on uh, the labor market, how this uh, is working, how uh, the labor market should be uh, lab- labor market indicators should be targeted uh, in uh, in terms of policy, and I think that will be very helpful for the economy going forward. How would it How would it be different from a Jay Powell Fed? For her. <laughs> 
Well, well yeah. It's, it's a slightly different job description, obviously. So that will be a lot. There will be a lot of focus on the fiscal policy. Uh, but again, I think uh, she will focus on the fiscal policy in terms of how it can help uh, the uh, labor market in at the time of the recovery. Uh, so uh, she knows this inside and out. And I would just say that if confirmed by the Senate, uh, Janet Yellen and Jerome Powell, at the head of the Fed, would make it uh, an optimal pair to lead the economy out of the crisis. So that uh, I, I really applaud the peak. Yeah. And, and forgive me, I misspoke. I'm like, you know, confusing my positions here. But it, I mean, she would be a very different Treasury Secretary from Steven Mnuchin. Well, uh, at the time of the crisis, it's really uh, about uh, how to uh, pull all the forces together, work as a team, and uh, really try to help the economy. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would say that Steven Mnuchin and Jay Powell worked really well as a team at the height of the crisis uh, as it was unfolding in in the spring. So, you know, there, there was some recent disagreement about the uh, fate of the lending uh, lending programs, uh, but I think uh, it really worked well as a team in the beginning of the crisis. And I think it would be a great team again uh, if Jay Powell gets renominated and uh, Janet Yellen is confirmed as a Treasury Secretary. Well, and I guess what I was thinking, and like I said, forgive me, I was kind of mixing my feds and my Treasury Secretaries, but I think what's important, Yelena, is that this is somebody, Janet Yellen, someone who understands how the Fed works, right? And the Fed and the Treasury Secretary often work, as we've seen, certainly during this pandemic crisis, have to work closely in hand, right? Because there's different tools that each of them can employ, but, you know, it's all about making sure the economy can keep moving as well as it can or doesn't fall apart, you know, more than it needs to. <laughs> uh, so, and I do wonder about, you know, her having this knowledge of how the Fed works, how that will be an advantage during this time. Again, she brings a lot of experience, a lot of knowledge uh, from all different aspects of uh, policymaking, and uh, she would just use this uh, knowledge in her new position. Uh, look, the teamwork during the crisis time was very important during the financial crisis. We saw that back in 2009 and, uh, you know, the uh, combined response from fiscal and uh, monetary policy authorities, uh, you know, eventually brought us out of the crisis. Right. We saw that again this time around in, in the spring. And uh, we will definitely need this teamwork going forward as we... Uh, really uh, get through the recovery. One thing I want to ask you, got about 40, 50 seconds here. I mean, what's also key is she's got to, you know, deal with, and what will be a challenge is the logjam that we have on Capitol Hill to deliver economic relief to those long and growing unemployment lines. Does she have the respect and do you think she'll be able to work her way through Congress and just got about 30 seconds here? I think she has all the respect uh, from different, uh, you know, sides of the aisle. And uh, she proved that uh, very much uh, during her tenure at the FIT. All right. Well, certainly living in interesting times. Uh, You know, just quickly, Yelena, does this seem like the right type of Treasury Secretary for the world that we're in right now? (laughs) Well, I, 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 I think yes, absolutely. I think she just has a lot of experience and knowledge and uh, she would just be the right fit for the job. 
Yeah, she's definitely, as we said earlier, Charlie and I were talking about it, Charlie Pellet. She certainly has seen the world and the economy from a lot of different perspectives. Um, so brings kind of a rich base of knowledge to the position or would uh, certainly. All right, Yelena, thank you so much. Bloomberg Intelligence, senior U.S. economist, Yelena Shaletyevop. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed, everyone. Just about 20, min- uh, 20 minutes left in today's trading session as I check the clock here. Uh, let's do the drive to the close with Michael Sheldon back with us, Executive Director, Chief Investment Officer over at Hightower RDM Financial, once again uh, joining us from Westport, Connecticut. Michael, good to have you here with us. How are you? Good. Uh, good. Thank you. Happy pre-Thanksgiving. Thank you. And to you as well. Uh, you know, I kidded at the top of our broadcast. It's supposed to be a quiet week. It's a holiday week, but because it's 2020, it's unlike <laughs> any holiday week that we've known before. A lot of news, virus news, vaccine news. And then we had, of course, um, crossing the Bloomberg about Janet Yellen, uh, said to be President-elect Joe Biden's plans for Treasury Secretary, uh, according to those in the know. As you start to see... Uh, the Biden administration start to shape up. What does it say to you and what kind of environment and what kind of team does it mean for the markets, the economy, in your view? Well, I think as as President-elect Biden builds out his team, I think he's one, he has to he has to put together a team of people who's likely to be able to pass both the House and the Senate. So to get approved is the first thing. And then I think he's really a pragmatist. So I think he's likely to put people on his team that have a lot of experience already. And I think if you look at Janet Yellen, she sounds like a good choice. She has an impressive background. She uh, was the former chair of the Federal Reserve for several years. She was head of the San Francisco Fed. She was previously part of the um, Council of Economic Advisors under Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. So she definitely knows her way around Washington. And I think the market should welcome the fact that fiscal and monetary policy should be able to uh, coordinate fairly closely and which should help the economic recovery, at least over the next several quarters, I would think. Yeah. And listen, this is someone who also prioritizes, as we just heard from our Yelena Shaletova of Bloomberg Intelligence, this is someone who prioritizes the labor market, right? She focuses on it. This is where her work and research has dealt with. Uh, and she understands maybe what needs to be done to get a labor market back to more normal. And she also importantly knows her way around Washington. So that should help her work with policymakers and coordinate again with the Federal Reserve, which uh, outgoing Treasury Secretary Mnuchin seems to have maybe have hit a little bit of a stumbling block in his last uh, parting days. But that's a really good point, Michael. I mean, listen, that's going to be the roadblocks that are Congress, right? <laughs> or that is Congress. Uh, that's a big deal in terms of trying to get the necessary policies that need to be put into place to help out workers, to help out the economy. We've seen it, as you said, we thought things were going so well, and they were for the first round, right? But it's gotten much more difficult. We need somebody who understands the intricacies and the difficulties that are Congress. Absolutely. It seems like it's gotten a little more of a contentious, the relationship between the Fed and the Treasury have gotten a little more contentious in recent weeks. But I think, I think it sounds like Janet Yellen sounds like a sensible, solid choice. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, what are you going to be looking for specifically when, it, you know, as an investor, somebody who watches the markets, what are the types of policies that you think are going to be at least minimally necessary to kind of provide a little bit of a safety net and kind of shore up uh, the economy at this point, which ultimately then, right, shores up the market. I mean, the markets, as we heard at the top of our show with our Gina uh, Martin Adams, you know, they're forward looking and they're getting more optimistic as we see more news about a vaccine. But nonetheless, if the economy starts to come undone again, markets and investors are going to get a little bit nervous. Yeah, I think the big news over the past few weeks is certainly news about the vaccine. The fact that we have multiple vaccines that will likely be available to the general public over the next maybe three to six months or maybe a little longer, depending on logistics and distribution, I think that sort of provides a light at the end of the tunnel. And while the number of cases may go up and economic data may get a little bit weaker over the next two or three months as we head into early 2021, it sounds like, from our perspective, it looks like the economic data should start to improve during the middle of the year. And we could have a pretty solid second half of next year heading into 2022. So having said that, have you been kind of repositioning at all? Are you still kind of playing a little bit of a wait and see mode? Might you at this point? Right. Well, in our traditional models, outside of our income-oriented model, which has a little bit of a different mandate, we really have sort of a barbell approach. We've, we've been overweight growth for much of the past several years, which has worked out pretty well. But now we're basically moving a little bit from growth and basically trying to participate a little bit more in the parts of the market that are likely to perform better as the economy recovers. So we have started to shift a little bit in terms of investments towards parts of the economy that will participate better. But we do have a barbell approach because you do want to be diversified. Yeah, exactly. Well, what's going to be the trickiest? I want to go back to Janet Yellen just because it is our top story on the Bloomberg. And I just think, you know, as we continue to try and focus and look forward, um, this is a key part of it. You know, what will be kind of her number one task or does it need to be, do you think, day one uh, if she indeed becomes the next Treasury Secretary, as it seems likely? Well, I think she's going to be, I think she'll have to work with the Senate. I think early in 2021, it'll be critical for Congress to pass another stimulus package. There are a lot of workers who are going to be losing their unemployment benefits in the next few weeks or so. And so that the economy doesn't run out, run on, run out of gas, so to speak, uh, heading into the winter and early 2021, I think she should work as, much, as best she can and coordinate with the Democrats and Republicans to get a, some sort of fiscal package passed in early 2021. And the government also is uh, actually supposed to run out of money in a few weeks. So, but that's part of the new, the current administration, not her administration. I think her, I think over the first few months, she'll, I think the best thing she can do is to work more closely with Fed Chair Powell mm-hmm. so that monetary policy and fiscal policy are coordinated uh, on the same page to help the recovery. There used to be a separation between the two of them, but the lines have blurred a little bit. Uh, And you can see that in the fact that the Federal Reserve has been buying lots of treasury bonds and almost financing the U.S. government deficit in recent months. So we'll see sort of how that develops uh, during her administration. Yeah. And listen, no doubt about it, there's an advantage to being (laughs) with Jay Powell and saying, listen, I understand your job. I understand your position. Been there, done that, right? Right. But I think for the markets, the important question is, does the economic recovery, which started this past summer, does Mm -hmm. it remain on track? And we think it does. And it's also important to think that historically, economic expansions don't typically last a number of weeks or months. They last a number of years. So from our perspective, we think Mm -hmm. the economic outlook, we're likely to see somewhat better GDP, improvement in corporate profits, 
um, employment should continue to gradually improve. Right. And this should set the stage for some improvement as we head through next year. Right. Provided we do get these virus cases under control and the economy starts to get back to normal. Michael, thank you so much. Really appreciate your thoughts uh, on the markets as well as uh, Janet Yellen, that news of her expect- expectations really to be appointed the next Treasury Secretary by President-elect Joe Biden. Michael Sheldon, Executive Director, Chief Investment Officer at Hightower, RDM Financial, joining us on the phone from Westport, Connecticut. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.